The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Last week, I was down in Northfield at our church plant, Northfield Community Church. The elders there had invited me to share at their Global Focus Weekend. So Saturday night, I had a chance to share on the relationship of gospel, of the gospel to care for the poor, and unpacked a little bit of what God has been having my family do in Ethiopia. And uh, six or seven biblical reasons that God has uh, shown me to lead me in care for the poor. And then on Sunday morning, my dear brother, who is very silly, Jonathan Woodyard, asked me, he said, I want you to speak on the theme of missions from creation to consummation, from Genesis to Revelation. <laughs> and you've got 30 minutes. <clears throat> and I, I, I literally texted him back and I said, you're kidding me. You know who I am, right? And, um, and before he could respond, my daughter, Ruthie, said, oh, Dad, I'm sure you've got 40 minutes. He just knows if he tells you 30, you'll take the 40. <laughs> well, so I, while he was texting me back, I, I, I wrote him that. And he's like, oh, my, your daughter knows knows you too well. Yes, you have 40. <clears throat> I took 51. I did it as quick as I could, and I, I didn't know what else to do. Um, but it was a very, very rich time. If you haven't had a chance to make your way down to Northfield on a Sunday morning, I encourage you to do it. They started out with a core of 22. They've got over 100 people coming on Sunday morning. Uh, a number of folks just, I mean, right from the community that have heard about this church and have been longing for a gospel-minded, global-focused people, and they found it in Northfield, and it is just a joy. I came home having already been praying for you, and to receive the prayer list, um, Rob, I was just saddened to hear of your need, and it just moved me to plead to God on your behalf. And uh, I just, I'm glad that we make this list on a weekly basis, um, that we care for each other. I just, I, I hope you're praying for one another. And uh, it's a gift to me to be able to shepherd you with the word and to uh, love you in this time. So as Steve said, we, we have class today, then we have two weeks off, and then we'll be back in January, this is our 50th, or is it our 51st? Our 50th message on Isaiah, and I'm targeting 53. 53 on Isaiah. I think that would be um, sweet. So open up your Bibles, please, to Isaiah 65. This is our second week here. On Isaiah 65, 
a refuge for the poor, a shelter from the storm. This is our God. That was the final song we sang this morning. And that text grows out of Isaiah 25. One of the numerous mountaintop texts in the book of Isaiah. We haven't covered all the passages in this 66-chapter book, but we've covered a number of them because so many of them focus on the servant Savior and the age that he would create in allowing the future to enter into the present, bringing the kingdom in. And we've just been celebrating him week after week, coming to the end of our two and a half years working through this book. So we're in Isaiah 65, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. I want you to see that this is focused on the mountain of God. What he's talking about in this text is something that is related to Jerusalem and the bride of God and something we've, le- we've been uh, looking at for a very long time. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth, verse 17. And the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I'll rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall there be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress in that new creation day. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit, for they shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed Yahweh and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. He's going to be answering before we can even pray. That's awesome. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not destroy or hurt in all my holy mountain, says Yahweh. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your book. Thank you that we can look at it this morning. I pray that you would heighten our hope for what is and what you have promised will be through Jesus, our servant Savior. Amen. There's two announcements in this passage, and I think that they work hand in hand. And this morning I'm going to try to unpack why I think so. And the two announcements, verse 17a, I create new heavens and new earth. 
Now, in the Greek translation, it says new heaven, which is why I think in the in Revelation 21, heaven is singular. I don't know that there's any significance to that. Um, the distinction, the Hebrews thought of the heavens as a dual reality and the way that it's portrayed among the Greeks is a singular reality. Um, new heavens and new earth. Then in 18c, behold, I create Jerusalem. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. Both of these are providing the reason why God's servants, offspring of the servant, why God's servants will be flourishing, and yet all the wicked destroyed. That's what verses 13 through 16 unpack in the chapter, contrasting what is true of the servants and then what is true of the wicked. Why will it happen? Why will the flourishing come? Because God's going to create the new heavens and the new earth. That is, He's going to create Jerusalem. I'm prone to think that Jerusalem as Isaiah envisioned it, was not one city on the new earth, but was actually the new earth. That Jerusalem is the new earth. That the mountain of God, where the presence of God dwelt, that is, the temple of the living God, was indeed the world. That what Isaiah is envisioning, and the reason he's able, he, he uses the exact same phrase and yet replaces new heavens and new earth with Jerusalem is because he's talking about the same reality. That Jerusalem, where God would dwell, where all the peoples of the world would be gathered, is to be equated with the new earth. So we're going to consider this this morning by walking through six of the major mountaintop texts in Isaiah. And I think all of these mountaintop texts are actually working together. We're looking at the same reality from six different angles. And when we walk through this grand scope, this grand vision of Isaiah's end time, new creation, that is new Jerusalem... I think we're going to see this interworking of Garden of Eden, new creation imagery, the presence of God and the people of God at one level being global and at one level being local. Also that we can better understand what Isaiah was hoping for and ultimately how do we relate to it. Now, he begins by saying, I create new heavens and new earth. That's the announcement, and then we read the results. First result, verse 17, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, when I compare this to other passages that talk about the lasting significance of the past in the life of the new covenant believer. Even recollection of past sin, not as guilt or as condemnation, 
but as a means of God to nurture sustained humility so that we forever recognize our deep need for Jesus. There's some sense in which the past still matters. But when it comes to the past being burdensome, the past being filled with pain, we come to images like Romans chapter 8 where Paul says, our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. That when we reach the glory, all of a sudden, what seemed like massive pain, massive struggle in this day, will be quickly forgotten. Much like, well, I say this not because I have any clue what it's like, the pain in childbirth. (laughs) That all of a sudden when you get to hold the child, what you just endured, what I as a husband got to witness three times, well, one time I was a little more out of it in my life. My wife likes to tease me about it. I needed orange juice and she needed to have a baby. So, um, but anyway, uh, moving beyond that. So seeing this, um, seeing this amazing, this amazing endurance and then amazing joy and the joy just overpowering what was just endured. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This this vision which two weeks ago we saw has been inaugurated, initiated in the initial coming of Christ. There is now new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17. That's what we're talking about. In some way, already, the past is the past. We are no longer people in Adam. We are in Christ. And yet, in this day of overlap, the overlap of the ages, we're still longing for the day when that old age will be fully done away with. And in that day, there will be no more tears. Number two. It says, the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. God's going to do this work, he says, and this new creation work has already been initiated. And so at one level, there this this command for joy is something that we can embrace now. I remember Pastor John talking about how he named his first big book Desiring God. Anybody know what the little 60-page abridged version of Desiring God is? The Dangerous Duty of Delight. And so think about desiring God versus delight in God. Delight in God is something that is present. Desire is something that is awakened because you have delighted. 
Desire is about the future. It's about longing for more. And in this text, it says, Be glad, rejoice forever in that which I create. And insofar as we have tasted the future already, we have delighted. And it's that delight then that can serve as fuel. God has let us taste and see that He is good. And so it can serve as fuel to heighten our desire for more even while the age of Adam persists. And Christmas comes and the loved ones aren't there anymore. Or the tension continues with family members. While the darkness still looms to remind our souls that the light has come, that delight has been tasted, and let that delight fuel heightened desire for this consummate picture that Isaiah is giving us. It will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that, we, that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. That's what we will sing on that day. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Chris? The last line of verse 18. The. So. Uh, I'll just note first off that I see a break happening where the ESV puts a semicolon after create. And then I'm seeing repetition. I, behold, I create new heavens and the new earth. Behold, I create Jerusalem. So, the first unit has that you, be glad. You, be glad in light of what has been created. And then the second unit that begins with, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, expresses the intention of God's heart, what He is doing, Jerusalem's people to be a gladness. So, I'm not... And then immediately we find out that it's those people in which God is glad. God is rejoicing. So, when it says... I see, I, I, I think, I think that the servants are being called to rejoice in verse 18, uh, A and B, and that God is declaring, I have made you to be a joy, and he's rejoicing in them to be a joy, for a people to be a joy it could mean two things, that they become the object of God's joy or that I have made you to be one um, 
that rejoices in me and in doing so reflects the greatness of God by the joy. Like that in this recreation, he's reshaped them. I don't know that I'm specifically getting to your question yet. Whether they're being delighted in or they're delighting in God, um, or both and, yes. Well, don't you think he's delighted that they've been, they've created to be a joy, but they haven't always been a joy? They haven't been a joy, no. So now. But this recreation, this is to, the, to this end that you would be a joy. A, a mutual joy. Yes, you would, you would anticipate that. And what I, what I find so beautiful here is God's declaration in verse 19 of his absolute joy in his bride. A bride that is a people. Was there a hand back here? Just as a side note, as we look at this mutual delight of God for His bride and His bride in God, just remember and pray for it, ask for it, that God, if you are married, would rekindle such delight, a mutual delight. Because insofar as you find that mutual delight, in your spouse, you are reflecting what God created his new bride for. Open up your Bibles, please, to, oh, this is going to be tough. I still have more before I get to my overview. Um, okay, his announcement of creating Jerusalem. That's where we're at right here. I will create Jerusalem to be a joy. And this, this Jerusalem is new creation Jerusalem. This is what Paul, I think, refers to when he contrasts the present Jerusalem on the planet 
with the Jerusalem that is above that is our mother. That the church is offspring of a union between Yahweh and His bride, Jerusalem. And yet that bride is also a people who are themselves the church. But here, he's referring to Jerusalem as this reality that is above the bride of God that he's, he's shaping as a beautiful image that will culminate in a marriage festival at the end of the age. This bride is our mother, and she's a heavenly being. I think that's what he's envisioning here. A transformed healed, redeemed Jerusalem. And he is saying the servants will enjoy great blessing because I recreate Jerusalem, but all those wicked will be punished. So this is a Jerusalem that is on the other side of the punishment. Here's Hebrews. You church have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's, I think, what Isaiah is envisioning. That's where the new creation has happened. This planet, the Jerusalem in the Middle East today, or this earth today, is what will burn up. This is not the new creation. There are foretastes of it, and you and I are a part of that foretaste. But the new creation is something that he's, he's birthing through a people. And where our identities are where Christ is seated above. And it's that above new heaven, that above new earth, that will ultimately become our reality. I saw new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. The sea was no more, and I saw the holy city New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the reality has been done. So the New Testament will say, you are exiles. This is not your home. You are citizens of a different land. That different land is Jerusalem. The new creation where God is at work, but that new creation will not only have a people, it will have a place and it will become our reality in the future. But right now we are like foreigners in the old creation. The Jerusalem we're reading about here is a future reality that we will see, but it's a present reality that already exists, that we've identified ourselves with, where Christ is seated in the presence of God. So, quick question: Does God have to like do away with this heaven and earth because sin came in, like Adam and Eve, and something that He can't fix? It's not a matter of fixing; it's a matter of simply cleaning, punishing. So, some texts talk about um, God doing away with the first in order to bring about the second. Other things. Other texts, like Romans 8, talk about this creation groaning as in the pains of childbirth awaiting the day when it too will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the corruption, the decay, the futility of this age, it's been placed upon the first creation and so 
through the lens of Romans 8, it would be as if there's still seeds of the original creation is what we're going to see in the future. That it's going to be set free from all bondage to decay. And yet, in that new state, it will be irreversible. Whereas the first creation was made and it could be corruptible, the new creation in the new state will be incorruptible. Never to go backwards again. So the question is, what's the significance of the sea? Now, I think there will still be water, but the sea from the very beginning of Genesis 1, 1, verse, Genesis 1, verse 2 is an image of chaos and darkness. It is the place where the multi-headed serpent dwells and where he reigns out his terror. And the flood was a return to the sea chaos. And so I think it's using the image figuratively to simply depict that um, in the future, watery chaos will be no more. All powers of darkness will be overcome. But in other images, like Ezekiel 47, the salt sea is actually lifted up as a place that will be completely purified and the river flowing from Jerusalem to the Salt Sea will be surrounded by multiple trees of life and it will become like a garden sanctuary where fishing will be eternal. And that's really cool. So, okay, the thought just that maybe, maybe C would also point to the lack of separation of peoples because there will be a united reality, a, a united uh, meeting place in the presence of God. It's at least a true thought. And I, I would just need to work it further, um, whether the C is portrayed as a separating barrier throughout Scripture? Is it, is it viewed as that? I, I know that it's viewed as a hostile power. Um, but the, I, the reality is the future is portrayed as a reversal of the Tower of Babel. No more separation and dispersion, but rather the daughters of my dispersed ones will now regather to me in Jerusalem. And that's Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 10. And the idea of, of community rather than separateness is absolutely part of the vision of the future. Gene? Sure it was.
That's good. So up until the last hundred years, the sea was always an obstacle, an enemy, um, a place of danger. There was one more hand. So the question is, how are we to think about the makeup, ethnic makeup of my people who are associated with this Jerusalem in verse 19? And would it not be that Isaiah's audience would have been thinking about my people as having some relationship to Jews. And I will, let, let's, um, <laughs> let's just look at four texts. Isaiah 54, just turn your Bibles there. Isaiah 54, we'll start here. Just a quick summary, and we're going to touch on this again, but you're at the front end of Isaiah 54. Let your eyes just move up to the end of Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, that's the servant person, by his own knowledge, that righteous one will make many many to be accounted righteous. And the question is, who are the many? So then we turn to Isaiah 54, and we read at the beginning about Jerusalem, the barren one, who will have children. More, or same word as in verse 11 of 53, many. They will be many. 
then the, child, then the children of actually Israel, enlarge the place of your tent, let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Jerusalem, don't hold back, lengthen your cords, for you will spread abroad to the right, to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations. The many offspring will include the nations. Jerusalem's offspring will be nations, plural. That doesn't mean not counting the Jews. It means the Jews and. Then you go to the term servants, and that's where I'm heading us. Look at the very final word in verse 17. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. Well, the servants are those offspring of the servant. And the nations are included among that offspring. Next text, Isaiah 56, verse 6. And the foreigners, that's non-Jews, who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, key, They're going to join themselves to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. The servants include those who were once foreigners. They are the servants of the living God. And now we go to Isaiah 63, 17. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. It seems as though to me there we're talking about the actual 12 tribes of the Jews. But notice they're calling themselves the servants. In 56, the servants were the foreigners. They've all been joined together into one group. And then you come to chapter 66, sorry, chapter 65, where we see, Behold, verse 13, My servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. My servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. My servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. My servants shall sing, but you shall cry. Isaiah has led us to understand who these servants are. The servants of God, that is the people, the one people of God, are a mixed community that includes foreigners who've become servants, that includes Jews who've become servants, but all of them have become offspring of one who was never physically married namely the Messiah Jesus. And the only way that they've become his offspring is by adoption. So there is still a future. God is still gathering in for himself Jews unto Jesus. And he's gathering in for himself non-Jews unto Jesus. I will make you a light for your people, but it's too light a thing that you would only be a light unto Our people, I will make you a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, verse 6. So it's that mixture. The one servant becomes the father, as it were. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. He becomes the the father, as it were, of an offspring. And that offspring is made up of 
not simply the Jews, but also many from the nations. It's, but it's become one people in Him, one new identity, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, one new man. The question is, are we no longer to regard the unbelieving Jew as a servant of the Lord? I do not think so. I think that the unbelieving Jew has actually become like the enemy nations. So that the servant of the Lord is only those who are surrendered to the servant. Six mutually interpreting mountaintop texts. Let's consider. Let's consider. And we'll see, we'll pick up here, Lord willing, after Christmas, as we'll see what we can do. But this should, what I want this to be, if you've been here for two and a half years, this will be a reminder to you, a walkthrough, um, and drawing together a number of texts that we've looked at to see how they all relate. Chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain, there it is, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of all the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills. And all the nations will flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion will go the law. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Latter days. Joel chapter 2 at Pentecost says, This is what Joel said would come about in the latter days. The older men will prophesy. The young men will dream dreams. That's a latter days reality. You know what God spoke to us in the former days through His prophets, but in these latter days, He has spoken to us through His Son. Hebrews chapter 1.1. In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be elevated. What is the mountain? What is the house of the Lord? Anybody? What's another word for it? The temple. He's envisioning a day in the future, far beyond when he is speaking, when the temple of God is going to be raised up and stand in contrast to all other earthly powers. And that temple, in being lifted up, is going to see an an influx of peoples from all around who are going to be hungry for the Word of God. And in that day, where there was once hostilities between ethnic parties, there'll be garden tools working to prune and see this new Garden of Eden expanding. The timing, latter days. 
a multi-ethnic influx to a transformed Jerusalem in order to be taught by the Lord. And there God's going to work justice and bring global peace. That's the very first image of the mountain that we get in the book. And the question is, how do we understand that? And already reading it through the lens of Ephesians chapter 2, where the church is the temple and it's made up of people from every tongue and tribe and nation, at least it's, it's growing that way, all of a sudden we wonder, is that what he's envisioning? Peter already told us it was the latter days. The resurrection sparked it. Jesus declared himself to be the temple and said, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Next text. Chapter 4. In that day, which day is it? It's the day of the Lord. The day when pride will be destroyed. When humility will be elevated. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. That's Garden of Eden language. That's like a shoot growing up out of a deep-seated root that has flourishing on it, rather than like in Isaiah chapter 1, the dead garden. There's going to be a branch, and it's going to be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. So we're looking ahead to a day after judgment when there will be survivors. But notice where it goes now. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Now Jerusalem is where the mountain of the Lord is. And who's there according to chapter 2 in Jerusalem? Chapter 2, verse 2. Who's there? The nations are there. Keep that in mind. So, those who are left, who remain after the day of judgment, who are still in Jerusalem. I don't think we're just supposed to think one ethnic group now. Those who are in Jerusalem, they will all be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. I read you Psalm 87, <coughs> where it talks about new birth certificates. This one, from Cush, from Egypt, from Philistia, it will be said of them, this one was born there. All of them, when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. So, all recorded for life in Jerusalem will have been made holy through judgment resulting in fruitfulness. Like a garden, blossoming. That's what it's going to be like in Jerusalem. And, and I've identified through these two and a half years different elements. The presence of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit are both what Isaiah anticipates. That very language in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is Garden of Eden, new creation talk. 
And it's supposed to be blossoming in the lives of those who are identified with the heavenly Jerusalem, Galatians 4. Then the Lord will create over the whole city of Mount Zion and over all of her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. What does that remind you of? Exodus. And where does Exodus culminate? That glory cloud that led Israel out of Egypt leads them to Mount Sinai where Moses is commissioned to build what? The tabernacle. And there, the glory presence comes and rests. Where does it rest? Where? Over the Holy of Holies. And right in the heart of the Holy of Holies is His throne, the Ark of the Covenant. But now, this is envisioning a day when all of Jerusalem will have become the Holy of Holies where the people will be gathered there and over top of the people will be a glory cloud, the presence of God resting upon them as if they are the temple, as if they are the holy of holies. And everyone who is there, who survived the battle, includes a multi-ethnic people according to Isaiah chapter 2. Here's... Same vision, different angle. And when you've multiplied and been fruitful in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not even come to mind or be remembered or missed, that physical box. No, the day is coming when... All of Jerusalem will be called the throne of God, and the nations shall gather to it, to the very presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. We're looking for a day when that box, which housed the tablets of the law, would no longer be in a room, but where the box would be replaced by a people, And that the law that once was in the box will now be etched on the hearts of the people. The law will be in the heart. That's Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 17, Sin is inscribed on the tablet of your heart, O Judea. But then in Jeremiah 31, I will put my law in your heart. That's the day that we're talking about today. That's the day of the church. That's where we're living right now with the presence of God, the presence of the resurrected Christ with us. Isaiah's mountaintop reality is being fulfilled, I'm saying, already. And yet there's not yetness. But it's already. I'm not over-spiritualizing these texts. This is how Paul read the text. This is what Isaiah meant by the text. I I believe it. I think you can tell. (laughs) Here's Revelation. Then I came, then came one of the seven angels, and he spoke to me saying, Hey, I want to show you the bride. He's getting a glimpse of glory. Come, I want to show you the bride. 
the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. He showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. A few verses later, the city lies four square. Its length, its width, and he measured the city with his rod, 12 stadia. Its length, its width, its height are equal. What's the shape of the city? A cube. There's only one cube in all the Old Testament. Where is it? It is the Holy of Holies. When the text says there is no temple in Revelation, just a few verses after this, it says there is no temple. The reason is because the temple by its nature separated the holy from the common. There was a most holy place, then there was the holy place, then there was, sorry, there was the holy of holies, then the, the holy place, then a holy place. But there was gradations of holiness. In this day, that's what the temple was. Gradations of holiness. Not anymore. Now the holy of holies has become everything. The city, that is, the new heavens and the new earth. The city is the very place where the presence of God resides. And that bride is the people. You and I. And that's who we are already. That's where we are seated at the right hand of Christ. According to Ephesians chapter 2. We are already seated in the heavenly places. And those heavenly places will come to earth. Tangibly. Physically. In the future. Already, but not yet. New Jerusalem already realized. We got through how many? Two. Great. And next time we come together, I'll have a seventh text that I'll, I'll add in. Seven, not six, just to make it complete. Um, seven mountaintop texts and... We're, we're, we're just, we're, uh, it's my effort here to just try to bring together where we've been for these last two and a half years. To use these final messages to just draw together Isaiah's vision of the person and the people. The servant and the servants. The groom and the bride. And I hope that your hearts can sing and that your eyes can be seeing beauty in maybe ways you've never seen before. This is a book that is filled with life and it was written for us. And I want us to find our hearts encouraged. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you came in your first advent. We praise you that you are coming again. Thank you that already reality has been altered, that the old has gone, the new has come. We look forward to the day when that inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us will become sight. Hold us in these days. And may we engage Advent for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi.
professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason Deroshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. Deroshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.